welcome to Simply Christian, a podcast diving deep into the essentials of the Christian faith, heresies, and everything in between. I'm Isaac. And I'm John. How you doing, man? I'm awesome. This is an uh, episode so big, I had to spill into two episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a big topic. Yeah. What, yeah. Are, we, what are we talking about? We're continuing talking about the Trinity. Um, and so last episode, we were dealing with a lot of, um, you know, common objections, uh, framing it up. What is the Trinity? What isn't the Trinity? Um, this episode, we're going to really dig into the Bible. What does the Bible teach um, on the authority of Scripture? How has God revealed himself to us? And is this Trinity doctrine something that we can support biblically? But also, is it something that we can just sit under in the magnificence of God and just think of how beautiful is our God and how he has revealed himself to us? And even if we can't ever fully comprehend this glorious God that we serve, how beautiful is the picture that he's a triune God um, and the beauties therein of, of sitting under the Trinity. Awesome, man. That's awesome. Yeah. So what does the Bible teach about this? Well, this is a beautiful uh, kind of start to what I w- would call hermeneutics. How do we read the Bible? Um, first of all, we just know that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Um, and so when it comes to the Trinity, do- Trinity doctrine, it's a great example of hermeneutics. How can we read the Bible and learn what it says? How is God speaking to us? An example of this, um, when we read passages like God's love, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. Simple as that. Our God is a loving God. The full, consummate perfection of love, God is that. He is love. But at the same time, then you read Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, God is wrathful and avenging. Now, some people will say, all right, let's, let's, let's dial down the love part because God is mostly wrathful and avenging. God has powerful wrath that he will display on his enemies in destruction. So we're going to dial back the love thing and make love submissive to wrath. God is mostly wrathful. On occasion, he shows love. On the flip side, this happens a lot too. Some people will say, well, no, he's loving. So let's dial back the wrath part. We would just sit under scripture and say, God is full love, beautiful love. At the same time, God is wrathful that he will pour out on his enemies. And so when we read passages like this, we don't let one do injustice to the other. We sit and we say, this is our God, the God with whom we have to do. So exactly with the Trinity, as this begins to unfold in this episode, as we look at scriptures by the grace of God, we're going to look at this and just say, yes, God is one. God, There is one God who has revealed himself in three distinct persons. I maybe don't have full answers to how that all relates with one another, but I'm going to submit to it. I'm going to allow the revealed glory of God just wash over my life as I sit and behold the beauty of our great God, uh, who is one, but is also three. One God, three distinct persons. And so um, just real quick, I'm going to lay this out. Again, this is a monotheistic view. Although it's been slandered, although it's been attacked, the Trinity is a monotheistic view. We hold the passages such as Isaiah 43.10, Deuteronomy 4, 35-39. But there's one I want to look at, Isaiah 44, verse 8 which just reads this in the second half of the verse. It says, and you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. This is God speaking. If anybody's going to know that there's another God out there, it's mm, God who knows yeah, everything. But he good. says, I, I don't even know of any other God. There's no other God. I'm telling you right now. And again, so many scriptures to explain this. The Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
There's one God, only one God. And so again, if anybody ever tries to attack you as a Trinitarian, say, no, we are monotheistic. We rely fully on the fact and the truth revealed in scripture that there is one God. But at the, also at the beginning, you see, right, in, right from the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, you see this almost plurality begin to be unfolded. Um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, and so on. But again, right from the beginning, you have this idea there is one God and there's only one God, but you start to see this plurality just begin to be unfolded. And, you know, I'm sure if you all you had was Genesis chapter one, you wouldn't really know how to understand that passage. But as the Bible unfolds, we begin to see this beauty of this Trinity start to blossom. But right from the beginning, you already see, let us make man in our image. And we know that we're made in the image of God, but not angels. So who's God speaking to, if not within himself, within this beauty of the Trinity, which later is to be revealed in scripture. And so um, a couple things that just as we frame this up, um, we have to acknowledge God is eternal. There is only one God. Only God is worthy of worship. And also God is not a who, is not a what, but is a who. Okay. So those things are important. That's just going to frame this up. If you can remember those, write them down. God is eternal. Only God is eternal. There is only one God. Only God is worthy of worship. And also, lastly, this is important. God is not a what, but God is a who. All right, so here we go. So um, how are we going to dive into this? <laughs> yeah, so I think probably the first place to start would be some scriptures showing that the Father is God, mm. which is kind of silly because <laughs> I've never heard anyone object to that. Yeah, But there are scriptures that explicitly teach it, and it's worth just going over that. So um, one of the first ones would be Galatians 1, verse 3. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. All right? Mm -hmm. Yep. There's that. And then there's another one, Matthew four ten. This is during the temptation of Jesus while he was fasting in the wilderness. Uh, it says this, Talking, Jesus is talking to Satan. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Hmm. The implication in that text would be the Father, because he's talking yes. outside of himself there. So Yes. Yep. Um, and then another one would be Ephesians 1, verse 3. And that says, um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, exactly. Yeah. Simple as that, straightforward. And I think from, like you said earlier, this doesn't catch a whole lot of flack. Most people aren't like, are you sure the Father's God? Um, <laughs> it kind of goes uh, without saying in a lot of ways, but I think it's important to just start off you know, scripturally. Yeah. What does the Bible say? The Bible says the Father is God, undeniably. He's worthy of worship. Remember our list? He is not a what, but a who. He's somebody that we can relate to who has uh, personal characteristics. Um and as that Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, we worship him. We only worship God. The only one that's worthy of worship is God. Um, and also just flat out calls him God as well. And so we submit to that. Um, but again, that usually doesn't catch a whole lot of dispute. Um, where the difficulty will come in with certain groups, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, Muslims, um, Unitarians, uh, you will find uh, where does the Bible teach that Jesus Christ is a distinct person who is 
also the fullness of God. Um, and so a great place to begin where I sit with people, I like to go to John chapter 20, verse 28. Um, because if I'm speaking with a Muslim, uh, usually what I'll say to them is, all right, let's say Muhammad had somebody come up to him and say, Muhammad, you're my Lord and you're my God. I love you, Muhammad. What would, what would Muhammad do? I say to the, my Muslim friends, Muslims would say, no way. Muhammad would reject that. He can't, you can't let somebody call you God. You would have to quickly, as a prophet of God, shut them down. Um, to my Jehovah's Witnesses friends, say, what would you do if uh, somebody came up to an, uh, an angel and said, you're my Lord and my God? The witness would say, the, the angel would have to say, you only call the Father God. You can't call anybody else God. But here in John chapter 20, verse 28, we see the risen Jesus Christ who meets up with doubting Thomas, the one who's like, I'm not going to believe unless I stick my fingers in the holes of his side and his hands. Jesus shows up to him um, in verse 27, says, peace with you, peace to you. Um, then he goes to Thomas very gently, uh, even in his doubt. He says, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Just the tender care that he's meeting this doubtful Thomas post-resurrection. But then Thomas, listen to his reaction as he finally grapples with the reality that Jesus Christ is alive forevermore. Thomas answered and said to him, verse 28, my Lord and my God. He calls Jesus my Lord and my God. Now think of the reaction that, again, Muhammad would have. Um, an angel would have. They'd say, no, whoa, whoa. Uh, you're in awe of me, but your reverence is to God. You only call God, God. Jesus' response is very interesting. In verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are, you, blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. And so there's this beautiful mm -hmm. acknowledgement of Thomas, kind of, you shouldn't have to see me to actually be calling me God. But I'm going to accept it. I'm, I, but there are many who are not going to see me and are going to believe the same confession that you just made, that mm -hmm. I am Lord and I am God. Huge testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ is God, allows someone to call him deity, call him God, um, and receives it and actually blesses him for saying it. That's good, dude. That's good. Um, a couple other places where it's just, just quickly, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Um, and if you're writing these down, another one you can write down is Titus chapter 2, verse 13, where Jesus is just outright explicitly called God our Savior. But another one just real quick to worth, worth looking at is Philippians chapter 2, um, where Jesus is referred to as God, just like the Father is referred to as God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who... Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And it goes on to talk about his um, emptying of himself, uh, becoming a man and things like this. But it's very important to notice that Jesus existed in the form of God prior to his incarnation, before he came to be uh, a human being and walk the earth. He existed, and it says, in the form of God. And so again, we have this idea that Jesus Christ has, did not become God, that he has always existed as God from the very beginning. Um, and so again, just like we have scriptures that say that the Father is referred to as God, that we submit to, we also submit to the passages that say Jesus is God, and we allow them to be true, 
in our lives because they're going to be true regardless of whether or not we allow them to. So we might as well submit to them and sit under the beauty of the fact that Jesus Christ is referred to in Scripture as God. Dude, that's that's really good. That's really good. So what else? Is there anywhere else in the Scriptures that talk about Jesus as Son of God? Because I could hear someone making an argument, well, like... With a Philippians one, well, it says form of God, mm. not God, or yep, yep. even more so, like, well, so what if Thomas called Jesus God? Like, that's more of descriptive. Yeah. It's yep. not like a didactic, like saying, hey, Jesus is God, worship him. Yeah. Yes. So yep. is there anything else or maybe some oh, other? Oh, so much more. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. We're just getting through the tip of the iceberg. But another another thing that I really like to do when you mentioned it, worshiped. Um, going back to the beginning when it says uh, the, the outline that I laid out, only God is worthy of worship. We read it in uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. The devil tries to get Jesus to worship him. He says, if you worship me, the Greek word there is proskuneo. If you proskuneo me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, he rebukes him. He says, get out of here, Satan. You proskuneo, you worship God alone. You serve the Lord alone. And so Jesus says, proskuneo, this worship is only to be given to God. You don't worship anybody but God. Now that opens up a problem for a lot of Jehovah's Witness friends, Muslim friends, because Jesus is worshiped repeatedly. The same proskuneo, the Greek word, over and over and over throughout scripture. And again, I like to set this up when I talk to people. I'll say, well, what if I wanted to worship Jesus? They say, no, 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 you can't worship Jesus. Because you only worship the Father. And a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses will go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, where it says, you worship only God. And so, all right, we've established that we only worship God. I agree with you, my friend. Only God can be worshipped. If I try to worship an angel or a human being, I need to be rebuked. But if I'm worshipping, I need to only worship and direct my worship to God. Many places Jesus is worshipped. A great place that just, just to start is even from even from while he's still in diapers, um, Jesus is worshipped. <laughs> Matthew chapter 2 um, and verse 11. Uh, let's see here. It's the wise men. They come uh, and it says, after they found him, the star leads them right to the, the place where Jesus is. Verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child, Jesus, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down to the ground and worshipped him. The same Greek word, proskuneo, they fall down and they worship Jesus. Now, you could say, well, Jesus was too young. If he was older, he would have rebuked him. Uh, he would not have allowed it. He was, he was young, and so he, he didn't have words to put together. Let's go to Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. This is Jesus after he calms the storm, and the disciples are in great fear of the storm, but by the end, they're in great fear of him because he is the one who is, rules and reigns over even the natural realm. The winds and the waves obey him. And so it says, verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And then it says, verse 33, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Again, the Greek word proskuneo, they worship him. You see this at the mat, at the end of Matthew as well, just before he uh, gives them the great commission. Um, and tells them to go into the world and make disciples. Matthew chapter 28, in verse 17, it says, when they saw him, the risen Jesus Christ, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And so again, you never see Jesus rebuking them. You see this in John chapter 9. You see this in Luke chapter 24, Jesus being worshipped, and he never rebukes them. He receives their worship because that's what God does. He doesn't reject our worship. When our ch- when the children come to worship God, God doesn't push us away. 
he receives our worship and Jesus Christ receives the worship of his disciples. He receives the worship of those who he heals. Um, and so you see this beautiful picture of Jesus being worshiped by humans. Just one more on that though is in Hebrews chapter one, you see this picture where even the angels worship him. And so to my Jehovah's Witness friends, I asked them like, who's Jesus? And their answer is Jesus is the chief angel. He's Michael, the archangel, the most supreme, the one and only archangel. Big problem with that though comes in verse verse 6. Well, let's start in verse 5. For which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. But verse 6, it says, And when, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. Again, the Greek word proskuneo. All the angels of God worship him. And we see this right from the beginning with the, the shepherds meeting, laying out in the field, you know, and the angel comes and announces that Jesus Christ has been born, go see him. And then the whole heavenly host just begins singing um, glory to God, peace unto earth um, and goodwill unto men. You see this beautiful heavenly choir of angels worshiping Jesus Christ as an exalted being far high, more high and lifted up than they are. Mm. So angels, not only human beings, but angels even offer sacred service and worship to Jesus Christ, the one true God. Beautiful picture of Jesus Christ, worthy of our worship and praise and adoration. And if you're ever thinking, man, I only got to worship the Father. No, worship the Son as well. Yeah, dude, just thought about something. Um, as you were saying about, talking about that, um, if someone, I could, I could still see someone having an objection to the descriptive passages mm. of worship. I don't know why. But yeah, maybe yeah, someone would still object, which kind of be unreasonable. Yep. But um, this might get into our next episode on the reliability of, of Scripture. Mm. But the authors who are writing these letters and books that are describing the worship of Jesus, but not making descriptive comments saying yeah. that he shouldn't have been worshipped, right. right? Yes. Like, they are obviously trying to show who Jesus is and that he should be worshipped. And if the, I, I would think that the Jehovah's Witnesses taught, I don't know very much about their teaching, but I would, I would think that they teach that the apostles, the original apostles believed what they believe, yeah, right? Yep. Okay. And then Christianity, the church just got corrupted. It changed some, over time. Yes, yeah. Yep, yeah. Yep. So the thing is like, we, we can rely on the Bible, which we'll get into next episode. Mm -hmm. We know that we have the original writings of the apostles. We have what they wrote, okay? And if that's the case, then we know that they intended to put these pass to have these passages that describe mm. Jesus being worshipped, and there's no comments yes. saying that he shouldn't be worshipped. Yes. So obviously, like the intention of the authors was yes, Jesus should be worshipped. Mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. was worshipped, he should be. Mm -hmm. That's our theology. That's mm -hmm. why we're writing it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Yep. Yep. Cause you often get these places where they'll insert these comments like Matthew seven, um, after Jesus talks about what it's not what comes out uh, goes into your mouth that defiles you, but what comes out. And it says you see parentheses, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. That didn't happen in the scenario, but the, the writer inserted that because he wanted to clarify something. And so, yeah, for sure, if you have all these passages right. of Jesus being worshipped, you'd certainly see Matthew making sure. But we're not supposed to worship him. He'd, he'd want to <laughs> clarify that. And another place you'd see it, not only um, if the author uh, didn't insert in there and say, let's not worship him. You also see uh, so many passages where people are worshipped that should not be. 
and they reject it themselves. Peter in Acts chapter uh, 10 rejects the worship of uh, people trying to worship him. But also another noteworthy one in um, Revelation chapter 19. um, It says this um, in verse 9, speaking to an angel, John the Revelator um, is having this great vision of an angel. It says, then he said to me, the angel, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then John's response to this angel, (laughs) it's kind of funny. He says, then he fell at his feet to worship him. Now, it's a strange response, but the angels are so glorious that you see him falling, people falling down like dead people before angels. Great fear overtakes them. And so in some ways you can kind of sympathize with them. Man, what would I do if I met an angel? But listen to what the angel said. The angel said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and, uh, uh, and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so you see this angel giving a sharp rebuke saying, don't worship me. What are you doing? We only worship God. Don't worship me. No matter how great and grandiose I appear to you, you do not worship me. You only worship God. And so again, just kind of the last nail in the coffin with regard to the fact that Jesus Christ receives worship. So how could he be anything but God? Um, how dare us worship any anybody but God? Um, but Jesus, again, receives worship repeatedly. Um, another aspect, too, like we said in the beginning, um, only God is eternal. Only God is eternal. Only God stands uncreated. That Jesus Christ, if he is God, he must be eternal. He He can't be a created being and be God at the same time. Um, now, I'll just take you to Micah chapter 5. Um, this is a prophecy about Jesus Christ in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be known among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler of Israel. His going forths are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And so this is just solidifying the idea that Jesus Christ did not come into being as a person the day he was born in Bethlehem, that he can, he's, his going forths are from eternity. He stands uncreated. There is no beginning to him. Just like God the Father, God the Son also stands in, in eternality. There is no beginning to his uh, being. And so Jesus Christ um, is an eternal being just like the Father. But something very interesting that we see in John chapter 1, this is a very... Uh, a lovely passage uh, right after you get the beautiful in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Very clear, identifying Jesus Christ as God. But look at verse three. It says, all things, so not just some things, all things came into being through him. Now that's pretty clear. Everything came into being through Jesus, but John wants to bend over backwards to say what he just said again in a more clear way. So he says, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. <laughs> kind of a really awkward way to say what he's trying to say, but it's he's like bending over backwards to say anything that has a beginning came into being through Jesus. Mm. Now, if we put Jesus in the category of having a beginning, again, it puts us in a very incompatible situation because now we have to say all things came into being through Jesus. Jesus came into being. So that means Jesus had to be the source of his coming into being. Doesn't make sense. Mm. This is separating Sounds Jesus. Sounds like the Big Bang. 
<laughs> yeah, it sounds like a lot of these things that yeah, we, we which we'll unpack in future episodes. But it's very much John is distinguishing Jesus from all of creation. Everything that is created came into being from Jesus Christ, who is the Creator. There is nothing that came into being apart from Jesus Christ. And John is bending over backwards again, right after chapter one, verse one, where he clearly defines Jesus Christ as being the Word who was God. Mm. Um, clear indications again of Jesus Christ being God. Cool. Just something else. One last thing, um, just to throw in the mix, if this isn't enough, is you see so many Old Testament passages where Yahweh is referred to. Um, you read Psalm um, chapter 102. Psalm chapter 102 is referring to Yahweh. and But it's interesting because these verses are later applied to Jesus Christ. Um Verse 24 of Psalm 102 says, I say, oh my God. So he's speaking to God. Do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure and all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will, be, uh, you will change them and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. Beautiful, poetic, um, the psalmist writing about the glory of God. Everything fades away, but you, Lord, you stay the same. So he's speaking directly to God. He's not speaking to anybody else. He's speaking to God. Interesting, though, is that when you get to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, you see this passage, the exact same one that we read, not referring to God the Father. This writer saying, the psalmist wrote this about Jesus which is kind of mind-blowing because you read Psalm 102 and you're like, this is the glory of God. Wow, everything in creation is going to fade away, but God is going to remain the same forever. It's definitely referring to the Father, right? Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, no, this that passage was referring to Jesus Christ. So it says the whole, the whole uh, kind of discussion begins right at the beginning of chapter 1, but Verse 8, you see, but of the Son, he says. He says, of the angels, one thing, but of the Son, he says this. But now in verse 10, it says, and you, referring to the Son, if you read all of chapter 1, he's distinguishing Jesus from the angels. So he says this about the angels, but this he says about the Son. Listen to what he says about the Son. Let's see if this sounds familiar. Verse 10, and you, O Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So again, he's applying something that was written about God the Father, or seems to be written about God the Father. And he's saying, no, that's, that's being written about God the Son. An Old Testament passage, many in the scriptures refer to um, Yahweh in the Old Testament, are applied to Jesus Christ. And so we can certainly bank on those as clear indications that Jesus Christ, again, is the one and true living God. Man, awesome. So what about the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit. Oh, man. the whole, Just first of all, I mean, all glory to God. Um, you give glory to God the Father, God the Son. What a wonderful, just as if that wasn't enough. We have this beautiful Father that we call Father, this Jesus who we get to call brother um, in Scripture. But then we have the Holy Spirit, man, the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord God Almighty for just uh, the Holy Spirit. We have such a great God, um, and the Holy Spirit indwells us, regenerates us. Um, press into the Holy Spirit, because um, what a great 
what a great Holy, uh, Holy Spirit that we have uh, given to us. But um, with regard to, is he the third person of the Trinity? Um, yes, the Holy Spirit is God. Um, again, distinct from Jesus Christ, distinct from the Father. At Jesus' baptism, you see Jesus being baptized and the Holy Spirit comes down and descends like a dove. Um, it's not Jesus, it's somebody distinct. Um, in Matthew or John chapter 14, Jesus says, I will send you another comforter. He doesn't say, I'm going to, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to come back. He says, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, somebody different, another comforter. So this is again, not Jesus Christ. This is distinct, which is very important to note. Um, so there is distinction between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not Jesus. The Holy Spirit is a individual person. But again, the Holy Spirit is God. If we look at Acts chapter 5, um, we get one, in, one of these indications where the Holy Spirit is referred to as God. And you get the really interesting story of Ananias and Sapphira um, being struck dead because of their deception. They sold their property and said, oh, we sold it for a certain amount, but they really sold it for a lot more. And they just only gave a portion of their proceeds and wanted to get glory for saying, I'm selling all my possessions, but actually they only, uh, they kept back part of it for themselves. Um, and in their lie though, uh, so let's just start in verse one, but a man named Ananias with his wife's fire sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So we get this lie to the Holy Spirit. Peter saying, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And to keep back some of the price from the land, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your own control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So first, Peter says, you, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You, you lied to me, but you didn't really lie to me. You really lied to God. So he's identifying the Holy Spirit as God to put anything else in that sentence to say like, well, Peter, you, you lied to an angel. And then two sentences later, no, you lied to God. No, you don't do things like that. Peter says, you didn't lie to men. You lied to God by your lie to the Holy Spirit. And so we get this indication right from the beginning of the book of Acts. Um, and the Holy Spirit is all through the book of Acts. But Peter's not afraid to identify the Holy Spirit with God right from the beginning of the ministry um, and clarifying some things that the Holy Spirit is this powerful God with whom we have to do, who's going to be the instrumental force all through the book of Acts, driving and leading us in our ministry, indwelling us and flipping the world upside down. I want you to know right from the beginning that we don't lie to the Holy Spirit. We don't play with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God. And so we're going to recognize that this Holy Spirit with whom we have to do is a powerful being um, who's worthy of our reverence and our awe. Um, what about those people who say, well, isn't that's all well and good, John, but isn't the Holy Spirit just like the power of God, like the, like kind of like the force in Star Wars, right? So that's <laughs> yeah. maybe that's why it's called God, because it's really talking about the Father, but it's just the God's power has a nickname, and it's called the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yep, right? yep, definitely. So is Star there anything that, that tells us that the Holy Spirit's actually a person? Absolutely, yeah. Good Star Wars plug there, too, for the force. <laughs> um, and yes, absolutely, because when you meet a Jehovah's Witness, um, what they will say is the Holy Spirit is God's active force. That's what they'll say. He's the power. He's not He's not a personhood. He's just He's similar to electricity is really what they'll say. Um, electricity is impersonal. It has no personhood. 
It's just simply the power of God and it's great. It's magnificent, but it's not a person. It's not somebody that you can interact with. Um, so right off of the bat, just, just want something that you can take note of in this passage that we just read. If I, if I told you I lied to um, my computer um, or I lied to my bookshelf, I told my bookshelf a lie, you'd be like, you can't do that. You can't lie to a bookshelf. You know, if I was like, man, I, I told my bookshelf that, you know, I, I'm, I, I won the, the scratch ticket lottery. You're the most beautiful bookshelf I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, dang, bookshelf. <laughs> You're looking thin today. Like, yeah, you can't lie to a bookshelf, but you can lie to an individual. You can lie to a person. Um, but that's just the beginning. Um, let's just go to, Act, or I'm sorry, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Um because again, let's let's keep using the bookshelf as an as an analogy. If I insulted my bookshelf, my bookshelf wouldn't have any feelings about that. If I said bookshelf, you're actually I, I lied to you. You're not looking that thin today. You're actually looking very overweight and uh, disgusting. The bookshelf wouldn't have any emotions about it. I can't lie to it, but I also can't hurt its feelings. But look at Ephesians chapter four and verse thirty. Um, Paul says, "Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God." by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Mm. Such a powerful passage. And we can just look at it theologically for a second. But first, let's just look at it. This is an intimate relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit being God doesn't need us. Doesn't We're, we're not any necessity in the Holy Spirit's existence. But he makes himself so intimately known to us that we can actually grieve the Holy Spirit. That's a personal relationship where we can do something that grieves the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Um, and so just thinking about it on that like devotional level, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. But again, just on the theological aspect that we're talking about, you can't grieve something that's inanimate. You can't grieve electricity. You can't grieve a bookshelf. You can't grieve a power or a force, but you can grieve a person because a person has distinct qualities that a bookshelf, again, doesn't have. Um Something else that very much clearly describes the Holy Spirit as being in person. Uh, if you look at Acts chapter 13, and you see this all through the book of Acts, I encourage you next time you read the book of Acts, just circle every time that it says the Holy Spirit said, or the Holy Spirit spoke, or the Holy Spirit led. Um, circle those because you'll be amazed at all the times that you find it through the book of Acts. But the Holy Spirit speaks. Again, a bookshelf doesn't speak. Um, a power doesn't speak. Uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 1, starting in verse 1, but really we're going to look at verse 2. It says, Now there were in Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and a Menean who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, listen what happens, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit spoke. Imagine being there in that moment when it's like the Holy Spirit spoke. We're praying and fasting, looking for direction, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, me, not for the Father, not for Jesus, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Now, if your bookshelf ever says something like this to you, I want you to be like, whoa, <laughs> or your computer, the electricity flowing through it, all of a sudden starts speaking. No, this is not something that a power does or an inanimate object does. This is the Holy Spirit speaking, saying, set apart for me. 
Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to. Um, beautiful passage of the Holy Spirit speaking. But again, you see this all through the book of Acts. Um, it says in Hebrews, don't insult the spirit of grace. Um, again, you can't insult a bookshelf. You, But the Holy Spirit is somebody that's grieved, um, can be quenched. Um, but this is a person, a personhood. Um, clearly through scripture, this is not just some inanimate active force, as maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses would say. Mm, that's yep. good, man. I think maybe one last thing to just mention to wrap up the Holy Spirit is, you know, we talked about the eternality of the Son, but also the Holy Spirit's eternal, right? Yeah. Hebrews 9.13 says this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Eternal spirit. So, boom. Yes, boom. Eternal. <laughs> no. yeah. Mic drop. Mic drop. So, so yeah. So, I think, I think that's good. Um, but maybe one last thing to flesh out regarding the Trinity would be, how do we see the Trinity interact? How do we see the persons of the Trinity interact with each other yeah. in the scriptures? Yes. Because that, it's all well and good to, on paper, you know, see that, you know, they're called God, um, each, you know, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and we see some ways that that prove that, but how do we know that these, they interact with each other? Because so, so far, you know, it, it doesn't really give us the full picture as yeah. to what the Trinity is really. Absolutely, yeah. At its heart. For sure, yep. Um, and just something that shows, along with that, um, that the writers of scripture had the Trinity on their mind. It was on their forefront as we just look at a few passages that kind of show these Trinitarian formulas, um, but also give us a glimpse into, like you said, how the Trinity interacts with within itself um, as this triune God interacts. Um, a great place is to start uh, is right where we were. Uh, Hebrews chapter nine. Um, you see, you begin to see this Trinitarian formula of, what God does within himself. Um, Hebrews chapter 9, you just read it, um, but I'm just going to read it one more time, verses 13 and 14. But the blood of goats, for if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more, and listen for the Trinitarian formula, how much more will the blood of Christ, so we have the Son, who through the eternal Spirit, Holy Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so we're here again, we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but we have Jesus Christ offering himself as a sacrifice to cleanse sinners. But again, doesn't just do that without the Holy Spirit, but it says through the eternal spirit offered himself to God. And so we have this beautiful picture again, a Father, Son, Holy Spirit right from the beginning having to do with salvation or soteriology. How is man saved? How are we saved? It's through Jesus Christ's death, but not apart from the Holy Spirit. Even through the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ offered himself. Um, another great place to go is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, which is very similar. But it says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So again, you get right on the bat... Peter's writing, the author of Hebrews is writing, just saying like, this is, 
I need to write about all of them, <laughs> the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm not, uh, I'm not going to talk about salvation apart from the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, the, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, us being chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Beautiful Trinitarian kind of formula, all interacting with regard to our salvation, working together in the fullness of God. Um, beautiful passages uh, right there. Cool. Um, and just let me give you one more. This is just, a, I guess, a closing out passage. One of my favorite. Um, but again, you see this Trinitarian formula at the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus sends and says, go and baptize uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, but this is a really beautiful one. This is how Paul closes out the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The very last verse, verse 14. It says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What a great way to end uh, a book of the Bible. Great way to end an episode. A podcast is just the beautiful picture, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May that be the case as we revel in the beauties of our triune God um, to have great communion with this glorious God that we have. Amen, bro. Amen. Well, that's all for today's episode. Consider subscribing for more Simply Christian content. And until next time. Bye.